Welcome, screensavers. I'm Michael Gallup. I'm Matt Sturdivant. I'm Tyler Sitkus. Together, we host the Silver Screensavers Podcast, a show about the world of cinema and a celebration of our love of movies. Today, we're diving into two new movies made by two notable filmmakers. First, Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, and then Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog. But first, Matt's got an announcement. Yes, so I wanted to bring up the fact that we are right now number 17 in film review on Good Pods. So shout out to everyone who's been checking us out on Good Pods. As well, we passed 250 followers on Twitter earlier this week. Definitely a big milestone for us only having been at this for probably a couple of months now. So super grateful to everyone that's been checking us out on Twitter, as well as the rest of our social medias. We're past 50 on Facebook, and I think we're about there on Instagram as well. So if you don't follow us on social media, media, definitely check us out on there. We're throwing up updates all the time, new movie trailers, anything we find notable that's worth discussing. And as always, feel free to interact with us. Please do. We want to hear from you guys. And thank you so much to everyone who has listened so far. You guys are great. Uh, Matt, I'm going to throw it back to you for our weekly watch list. What have you been watching this week? Well, at the time of recording, Spider-Man No Way Home is officially coming out in two less than two days. Technically two days for the official release date, but we got them opening night tickets, boy. Mm-hmm. And I am incredibly, incredibly stoked, as I'm sure you guys are. So I have been re-watching the Spider series, um, not just in preparation for No Way Home, but in preparation for our Spider-Man Spectacular episode, which is going to be dropping this time. I'm sorry, not this time. We're going to be recording this time next week and then releasing the following Friday. Incredibly, incredibly excited for this movie. It's going to be great. So this past week, I pretty much got through all the, the slog of the Spider-Man movies, if you, if I do say so myself. So I watched Spider-Man 3, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 3, and boy, oh boy, did that not age well. It wasn't that good to begin with, but it definitely did not age any better. And then I watched the... Andrew Garfield, Amazing Spider-Man duology, pretty much back-to-back. Watch Amazing Spider-Man 1, first thing Sunday morning after I got paged for work. And then Amazing Spider-Man 2 last night, which got interrupted by another page for work because I've been on call for the last week and a half. So that's been fun. I also have been keeping up on Hawkeye. Hawkeye episode 4 dropped the previous Wednesday to this, so last Wednesday. Um, Not going to go heavy spoilers. But I will say, there was a lot to like about this episode. Um, in addition to all the action and the stuff that I've really been enjoying so far this season, we also got like a nice, sweet, sort of sort of lower-key, intimate, like soft moment. Um, because Hawkeye has uh, been upset that he's away from his family at Christmas time. So Kate tries to cheer him up and kind of tries to emulate the traditions that he had planned with his kids before things got all crazy. Um, it was just a very sweet, touching lull amongst all the action, um, which has been top-notch so far this season, and arguably one of the best MCU TV shows thus far. And, of course, this is going to be a minor spoiler, so skip like 30 seconds if you don't want to hear this, but surprise, surprise, Yelena Belova is back, Black Widow's sister. And it happens like right at the end of the episode, so like you don't see much of her, so I am incredibly excited to see what happens this week. And that's really mostly all I've been watching. That's the one, that's the show where Haley Seinfeld plays Emily Dickinson, right? No. No, oh. but 
but that's on my watch list because I love Haley Steinfeld. Okay. Uh, Tyler, what about you? So I also watched uh, The Amazing Spider-Man 2 because that was the only one I haven't seen in its full uh, form. Uh, I'll have um, my full thoughts on that next week for the next episode. But I also started finally caught up to the Dexter revival. It's getting really good. Some familiar faces are returning. Don't want to spoil it too much. If you're a Dexter fan, I recommend you give it a shot. All right, Dexter. Can't wait to hear more about that. Uh, I watched a few things this week. I watched Benedetta. This is Paul Verhoeven's new movie. I want to tell you, I saw this at Amherst Cinema. If you're somebody who lives in Western Mass um, and you're looking for something different in a really great movie theater, definitely check out Amherst Cinema. It's one of my favorite places to go. But I have to say, I went in there and I was in the bathroom before showtime and I dropped my water bottle in the toilet. (laughs) Because it was in my hoodie pocket, and I was leaning over to flush the toilet because I'm a good Samaritan, and it just fell in. How, how are you leaning over that it falls <laughs> out of your hoodie pocket? <laughs> well, it was one of the things where the seat was up, so I had to like lean over to reach around <laughs> okay, to hit the enough. handle because I'm not touching the seat. And Is it, are you holding this against the movie, then? <laughs> no, I love that movie okay. theater. That's in fact, I... I did a service to them. You guys know me. Do you think, yes or no, that I fished that water bottle out of the toilet? I think you did. Yeah. Well, you are correct. Survey says correct. Two out of two, I fished that out of the toilet and then didn't have a water for the movie. I did have a few bites of popcorn, which I knew was a risk because popcorn, the number one choking food. And for some reason, it's the movie Snack. I'll never understand this. Loud, crunchy, people choke on it constantly. Those uh, the little papery kernels get stuck in the back of your throat and you cough. I don't get it. I like How it. How often are you in theaters it. where people are like choking on these? <laughs> I know, right? Popcorn. It's me every time. It's called chewing your food. It's you've never choked on one of those little papery kernels in well, popcorn. Well, I have, but I, I, I've never seen <laughs> yeah, it. It's yeah, such yeah, problematic right, that like every theater, I'm like, oh my god, everyone's dying. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess uh, I guess it depends on your definition of choking too. Like I'm picturing someone like gasping for air, rolling around on the floor, like. Every crowd I've ever been in, everyone, there's always been somebody in the back who's coughed at least seven times. Every single crowd. I don't care That's not what crowd it is. That's I don't care what demographic. Everybody always I'm just, coughs. I'm just imagining someone like choking, turning blue, like coughing to death. And you're just like, I'm trying to enjoy my movie. here. Yeah, I'm trying to watch a simple favor here. Please stop choking. Mike, this is a post-COVID world. There's going to be people coughing. Uh, mm, I'm not, not a fan. It's no excuse. It's no excuse. <laughs> no. Otherwise, everyone else loves the coughing. You know, I can't get enough of people coughing. I'm not a fan. I love I love popcorn, but I don't know. I've always felt it doesn't mix well with movies. Give me give me fun dip at the movies. That's a nice quiet quiet <laughs> snack. Turns to liquid in your mouth. It's fun, sugary, you're a little hopped up for watching the movie. Fun dip, make fun dip the new movie, the new movie standard. That's what I say. Fun dip, we're free for sponsorships. <laughs> yeah, uh, this this would be perfect with the premiere of the new Wonka. True. It's a fun dip. The new, no, the new standard is you 
start day drinking, and then you go to Cinemark, and then you go to watch House of Gucci, and then you keep drinking at Cinemark until they cut you off, and then you leave a half like an hour into the movie. Yeah, check out our House of Gucci episode for that story. Of I was, <laughs> I don't know what that was all about. Uh, but I, I should I should actually talk a little bit about Benedetta, which was the movie that I saw. Uh, this is a French language film, so it is in French. Uh, this is about a nun in the 17th century who has visions of Christ while vying for power and developing a relationship with another nun, all while a plague ravages the surrounding area. As I mentioned, this is the latest from Paul Verhoeven, who did Robocop. Uh, Basic Instinct, which is my favorite. He did Showgirls. He did Starship Troopers. And he wrote this with David Burke. This is loosely based on the book A Modest Axe, The Life of a Lesbian Nun in Renaissance Italy by Judith C. Brown. Uh, This movie has an entertaining beginning part. Um, There's a big question throughout the whole thing of like, what gives anyone the right to any sort of authority or power? What, What about a person makes somebody an authority figure who has the right to take that kind of thing? Um, And there's a particularly interesting storyline with this character, Sister Christina. But as this went on and on, I I just got more and more tired of it until the end. I was waiting for it to be over. And like I had that feeling where I walked out of the theater like annoyed. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you walk out and you didn't really like a movie, but you're like, eh, okay. This one, I was like, this just put me in a bad mood. And I'm not even sure why. (laughs) Would it have been better if you had some water? (laughs) Yes, it would have. And I, it's my own mistake, you know, but... So this would have been a great movie had you had some water, but because of that, you're just not into it. I don't know if it would have been great, but it would have been... The, the smell of, of the toilet water bottle wouldn't have been on my hands. Why, did you not wash them? No, I always wash my hands. Come on, you know me. Yeah, don't even start with that. Uh, I also saw The Unforgivable. This is a Netflix film. This is about a woman who was recently released from prison trying to reconnect with her long-lost sister. And meanwhile, the sons of her victim contemplate revenge. This is directed by Nora Fingscheidt, written by Peter Craig, Hilary Seitz, and Courtney Miles. And this is based on a miniseries, Unforgiven, by Sally Wainwright. Obviously, they couldn't call it Unforgiven, or Clint Eastwood would talk about them like they're in an invisible chair or like they're invisible in a chair and they were really intimidated by that so they didn't do it um this is i actually really like this movie despite it not being like a fantastically made movie the plot conceits are all really fascinating i understand completely where this made a good miniseries because if you had time to sort of flesh out a lot of these things uh, they could be quite compelling a lot of these scenes in here I think if done a little differently, could have been really powerful. This movie is getting a lot of criticism, and I think the criticism is valid. But I I found it very entertaining. I I wanted to stick around to the end to see what happened. This is starring Sandra Bullock. I I feel like it's been a while since we've seen Sandra Bullock. Which is a good thing. Oh? (laughs) Uh, Give give me one second, and then I want to hear about that. Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, John Bernthal in a role. If you see this movie and you want to write into us, please give me a reason why John Bernthal is in this movie. I like, I have no idea why his role exists, and I love John Bernthal, but I got to the end of the movie and I'm like, I don't. They could have cut all that that man out, and I it would have made nothing effect on the movie. It's because he's John Bernthal. Yeah, but I don't. <laughs> Like, just watch the movie, and you'll see what I mean. 
Uh, great performances too from Richard Thomas, Linda Edmond, and Aisling Franciosi. Uh, yeah, it, I like it. I, I would recommend The Unforgivable. Uh, I also watched The Devil's Rejects. Have you guys ever seen this one? I have. From Rob yeah. Zombie. <laughs> so this is written and directed by Rob Zombie. Uh, it's about. Oh, the, is this the one about the three people? That's yeah, the, that might be three yes. from hell. Okay, three from yeah, but it's the same people. It's yeah. The, yeah, this is the Firefly Clan from House mm-hmm. of a Thousand Corpses. They're escaping a vengeful sheriff. Uh, they do a thing with this sequel. This is the sequel to House of a Thousand Corpses that they recently did with Don't Breathe Two, another sequel where like they take characters that were like entirely reprehensible and villainous in the first one. And in the second one, like, attempt to make them sympathetic and, like, attempt to get you on their side. Um, and I, I gotta say, it, it works. If you're a fan of Rob Zombie's films, one, I'm assuming that you've already seen this. And if you haven't seen it, I think you're gonna like it. It's a funny movie. Uh, the, the chicken scene, I've watched it, like, 12 times since then. It's, it's so outrageous and odd. Uh, this movie is dirty, disgusting. But if you're into that kind of thing... You'll like it as I did, and and then don't bother with the the third one, three from hell. I haven't seen that. It's it's not good. No, I I disagree with you about that. It worked. I thought they were very unsympathetic, and I thought it was a very weird twist because they do some reprehensible stuff in the beginning of this film. Oh and yeah, <laughs> yeah. You just kind of, you either have to get on the wavelength or or don't. These no. are not. You're never gonna love these people. Uh, if you- if you're gonna pick a Firefly movie, though, just go with the original because you yeah, get Rain absolutely. Wilson as Fish Boy. <laughs> that's that's true. And I <laughs> and also watched, uh, and yeah, which I, I was shocked the first time I saw that. <laughs> uh, I also watched Come On, Come On, uh, which I was anticipating for quite a while. This is about a radio journalist who must care for his nephew while the man's sister is dealing with the mental health of the nephew's father. This is written and directed by Mike Mills. And overall, I definitely recommend this movie. I liked it a lot. It's very touching at a lot of moments. There's a lot of good writing here. Uh, But the whole thing didn't like entirely work for me all the way through. There are really great performances. Joaquin Phoenix, Gabby Hoffman really hit it out of the park. Woody Norman, excellent young actor. It'll be cool to see what he does. And Scoot McNary is very convincing in a small but very pivotal part. Um, and a lot of the the children that are featured in this movie just give some of the most touching moments in the whole thing and like i said this is a very good movie and there's nothing bad in it but it has this very distinct format of mixing audio and images in a certain way that just repeats throughout the whole movie and there's like a lot of phone calls in this movie and there's a few similar things that happen and by the last half hour i found it kind of tiring and repetitive um so i don't i didn't love this movie as much as i expected to having said that i would definitely recommend it it does kind of place you in this this certain mood the whole time this is a black and white film and it was one of the like less obvious why they did it in black and white but it did kind of add a certain serenity it like stripped away an extra level of stimuli that kind of like put you in a calmer mood at least it did for me maybe not other people and i really interested in how they edited this film because it seemed like they had so much visual and audio mix mashing different options so if there's anything out there about how this was edited 
I would definitely be interested in that. Uh, have either of you seen Come On, Come On yet? I have not. No, I haven't. I haven't had a chance. I haven't been able to get to a theater in like almost two weeks. No. Jonesing over here. Yeah, I know what you mean. Well, soon enough, a couple of days, we'll all be there. Our ambulance countdown. We are 66 days away from Ooh. Michael's Bay's ambulance. Woo! Which takes place in L.A., by the way. Uh, L.A. or Louisiana. We're still not really sure. <laughs> they, they could be in Baton Rouge. True. On to movie news. We have a trailer this week for Sonic the Hedgehog 2. This is directed by Jeff Fowler. Uh, his directorial debut was the first Sonic movie, and he's also doing an upcoming Pink Panther movie, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's written by Pat Casey, Josh Miller, John Whittington, How'd you guys feel about the first Sonic? I thought it was the most generic movie I've ever seen. I actually didn't see it. The Blue Hedgehog, most generic movie? It was so generic. Like, you could have put any character in there. All right, fair enough. Yeah. And then I, just Olive Garden references for no reason. I, I think the, yeah, the, the humor in it is really bad. Um, I watched it with my family one time and that was quite enjoyable with them but as a film i'm not a huge fan i believe the sonic 2 game is the first time that sonic teams up with tails uh and this is the same deal here we're getting tails who's voiced by colleen o'shaughnessy who's been doing various tales uh voices since 2014 we got ben schwartz as sonic and now idris elba as knuckles i thought knuckles looked really good I thought he looked fine, but I could have heard that a million times without knowing Idris Elba played him, and I never would have guessed that's Idris Elba vo- Elba's voice. Yeah, it was fair enough. Yeah, it was. Um, I I wasn't really feeling that. Um, I I think I have to see a little more. I think visually yeah. it was cool, but but we'll see. And then Jim Carrey is coming back as Doctor Robotnik. I don't know about you guys, but. This is maybe like my high point of the first Sonic is it felt like Jim Carrey like was back in a sense. Like he had this very fun manic performance that is very reminiscent of what made us all love him in the first place. Which, you know, he's done a lot of great dramatic work too. I'm not denying that, but that that was just reminded me of the nineties the Jim Carrey kind of stuff. And then James Marsden, who I also feel like I've not seen in a million years. Not since the last Sonic movie. Not since the last Sonic movie. This the first Sonic movie made almost three hundred and twenty million dollars. That's insane. Yeah. So I, I'm curious to see how well this one will do. When's the last time we saw Marsden before Sonic, though? <laughs> um, let me pull that up as we move on to the next item. This also is going to come out on April eighth, twenty twenty two. All right, next we got uh, a little, I hesitate to say trailer, but we got a teaser for a new Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. This is directed by David Blue Garcia, written by Chris Thomas Devlin. So like the Halloween arrangement of, of late, this is supposed to be a direct sequel to the 1974 original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So it like disregards like the nine movies that they've made since then. Uh, we don't really get a lot in the trailer. It's just kind of Leatherface running around and, you know, people are in danger of a chainsaw. I, I don't know. How, how are you guys feeling about this project? 
I need them to stop doing this. It was fine. <laughs> you know, it's it's not cool anymore to be like, oh, you know, let's ignore all the other <laughs> like movies where it's going to be a direct sequel to the one you enjoyed. Whatever. I'm done with it. <laughs> I my my take is kind of why not? What they haven't really got much to lose. I mean, if they want to try it, go for it. Um I'll I'll watch it. I'll give it a shot. We'll depending on what else is out that week, we might even cover it on here. Um, I want to, I want to hope for the best. And I mean, I liked the, the initial 2018 Halloween sequel boot. So, I mean, if that means this one's going to be good and then we can just dodge the next one, if it's going to be garbage, that, that's fine, I guess. I don't know. Texas Chainsaw Massacre kills. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Texas dies tonight. No offense, Texas. (laughs) That's just the, that's just the first... No, hang on, hang on, hang on. Uh. <laughs> I, I never mind. I don't have a better one than that. All right. Uh, <laughs> I thought I don't know. I'm curious as to how this is gonna work because I feel like part of the effectiveness of the first one is just like that you you don't know what is going on. Like things just happen very suddenly, and things like always get weirder as the film goes on and on and on. Um, so if this just becomes like a general slasher movie, I don't know how good it's going to be, but obviously we'll see when the movie comes out. So I've got Marsden's filmography of the last few years. You guys ready for this? I'm ready. Oh, yeah. So he will be in Disenchanted, um, the sequel to Enchanted. That hasn't hmm. come out yet, and that'll, be out, that'll also be out in 2022. But he, in this year, he was in My Little Pony, A New Generation. <laughs> oh, he was in the Boss Baby Family Business. He was in oh, the extended man. cut of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Was he? They just added him in, <laughs> or or cut him for the theatrical release. I don't know. What does it say he played in that? Burt Reynolds. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. I, I might seek that out now. <laughs> right. I'm curious. Uh, <laughs> he was in Henchman, which I don't know what that is. Oh, Shock. You said, you said he's in Henchman or a Henchman? He's in Henchman as Hank. Oh. Is it's Hank a, a Henchman or is he the leader of the Henchman? <laughs> Henchman is a computer anim- animated action comedy film, which I oh. have never mm, heard of. Never but, heard of. No. Hey, cool. Cool. Shock and Awe. Which I also don't know what that is. <laughs> he's, just, he's just making up things for his resume now. No, this was directed by Rob Reiner. <laughs> oh, God. God. <laughs> it's got him, Reiner, Woody Harrelson, and Tommy Lee Jones. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, I wouldn't say no to working with Rob Reiner. The Female Brain was before that. This is a comedy film. Oh, directed by Whitney Cummings. Oh, that's awful. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's the worst thing you could have said about a movie. Is this Blake Griffin? Wait, <laughs> what? Blake Griffin as Greg. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, this sounds like a winning movie. How many uh, Oscars did that pick up? Unfinished Business was before that. I actually did see that movie. It's Vince Vaughn, Dave Franco... Tom Wilkinson running around in Europe having hijinks, and it's hmm. worse than it sounds. Uh, so it's a direct sequel to Alien. 
<laughs> Into the Grizzly Maze was before that. Uh, that's about him getting attacked by a grizzly bear, I believe. That's the movie Revenant. Yeah. And that was in 2015 as well. That's two bear attack movies. <laughs> it's just copying. They're like, what's, what's the most popular movie right now? Yeah. The D-Train Accidental Love and then X-Men Days of Future Past was the, I think, the last thing that... It oh, what year note. was that? That was in 2014. That's the like the last movie I've heard of that he was in that that was he wasn't cut from the final theatrical release. <laughs> I mean, listen, I like James Marsden. I want to see him in more. <laughs> All right, let's move on. We have the another. This is not a trailer, but an announcement for a movie. This is Oppenheimer. Uh, this is by Christopher Nolan. This is the story of American physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer and his role in the development of the atomic bomb. This is going to be based on the book American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer by Kai Bird, Martin Sherwin. Uh, and they're also, I believe, going to write the script with Christopher Nolan. I'm not sure about that, though. Here's the cast. Cillian Murphy, Florence Pugh, Emily Blunt, Rami Malek, Benny Safdie, Robert Downey Jr., Matt Damon. For now, who knows what's going to happen? Because this is not set to come out until 2023. Uh, what I find most most interesting about this is like the kind of film for Nolan. I don't know if this is going to be biopic-ish, which is uh, something that he is not usually doing. But I, hey, I'll be interested in it. What about you guys? Yeah, the article I read said it was supposed to be a biopic, which is definitely interesting to see him try to pull a trick out of a different hat. Mm. I totally just conflated reference or uh, conflated sayings there, but it's fine. Um, I I mean, I saw the article, I saw the cast, I'm like, you know what? This sounds stacked. This sounds like it could could be awesome. I mean, obviously, I'm gonna want to see a lot more as far as a trailer at some point before I adjust my hype scale. But just looking at who's involved, I'm here for it. I'm I'm not a big Nolan fan since like the Batman films. I like Interstellar. It was one of my least favorite movies I've seen in theaters. Um, it's probably not true, but I just was not a fan of Interstellar, and I really did not like uh, Tenant at all. So, um, I think the only movie he did before that was um, Dunkirk. Right in between that, which I enjoyed, but I feel like I enjoyed it because it really wasn't. Christopher Nolan didn't have a chance to give like scripted conversations because it was just boring. <laughs> yeah, I um, I have to agree with Tyler. Christopher Nolan, especially as of late, and we'll talk about him more at another time. But I I admire him without like being on his wavelength. Like I just don't. I can't get in tune with like the human beings that he puts on screen. And that's not a criticism of him. That's just my personal preference, but uh, nobody asked. So let's get on with our review of The French Dispatch. This is an anthology movie exploring the various stories featured in the French outpost of an American newspaper known as the Liberty Kansas Evening Sun. This is directed by Wes Anderson and written by Anderson, Roman Coppola, Hugo Guinness, and Jason Schwartzman. Before we get to that movie... Tyler, I'm going to start with you. I just want thoughts on Wes Anderson, your personal relationship to his films. Uh, I really like Wes Anderson movies. Um, I think he's got this certain charm. He's definitely, like, undeniably got this... Um, I, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The um, Art style? 
Maybe. Yeah, he's got a style. Yeah, he's got an undeniable style that you can see kind of flows through most of his movies. And I think, you know, you've seen like parodies of it and stuff. So I, I really like the world he builds, like the color, the colorful like scenes he puts on. And I'm a big fan of Wes Anderson. And I love that he brings in the whole ensemble cast. Matt, what about you? So this was actually the first time I watched a Wes Anderson movie from beginning to end. Um, and I definitely see everyone's affinity for him now because it was it's beautiful and beautiful in a sense that like the way the way he sets up his set pieces and like does the sim- the sort of symmetrical frames is just so unique and interesting to me and he actually fills up these frames with li- with like life too like in this movie when Owen Wilson's character is bicycling through the city you know it focuses on him but then you still have the like the real bustling the very um lively set pieces in the background you got all the extras moving and it's it just feels very alive and it just pops and i i mean if this is any anything like his other movies i definitely have to go back and dive in and start watching some more because i'm i'm here for it yeah, uh, Wes Anderson is one of my favorite directors. Um, Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums are two of my favorite movies ever. Fantastic Mr. Fox, I think, is one of the best animated movies that have ever been made. Um, in that distinct style, it's always so surprising, especially like in his earlier movies, how moved I am by the characters because they can seem so um surreal and to some people like cold and robotic but that emotion most always uh hits me in the end which kind of made my my reaction to this movie a little surprising but why don't we get to this general thoughts no spoilers for now and would you recommend this film and who would you recommend it to tyler i'll go back to you so i i like this film a lot i think it did definitely fall into that style my favorite movie by him probably is Grand Budapest Hotel, and it reminded me a lot of that movie. I saw the same kind of um, styling, um, so I definitely really enjoyed it. If you're a fan of Wes Anderson, absolutely check it out. Um, I mean, I guess that kind of has to be your style. I mean, Matt, you liked it. You, you're not a Wes Anderson fan, um, but you enjoyed it, so um, I think if, you, if you're curious about it, give it a shot, but if you're not a Wes Anderson, if you don't like Wes Anderson films, I think you'll have a hard time with this one. Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, I wouldn't say I was not a fan, but it's just I was indifferent because I never really watched any of his stuff. But I do like a good anthology movie, regardless of who's making it. Something about just like the short form stories, just really. It I like I just like the setup because you get, I feel like you you almost get more for your money when you watch anthology movies, especially when they're done very well and each segment has a. Uh, definitive like beginning and ending um and just like when each segment can stand on its own that's when you know it's done really well and then and then if you can tie them all back together with some form of plot like in this one where it's all just like segments of a newspaper i think it was it's just a, a a good ride and if you like a good anthology movie then definitely there's something there for you yeah i i i'll say the filmmaking here is just undeniable and you know there's an early shot where a man is moving up different stairways and towers and all this stuff it's just this huge wide shot and you're just watching him like this little puzzle moving it's it's absolutely incredible 
I, I have to say, though, I just really don't like this movie. And that's disappointing to me uh, because Wes Anderson is one of these that only, at least traditionally, only makes a movie every few years. Um, and I also didn't like 2018's Isle of Dogs. So it's now been like seven years since I've enjoyed a new Wes Anderson movie, uh, which is, you know, disappointing. But uh, Tyler, you're shaking your head. Are you? I really like Isle of Dogs. <laughs> oh, I did not. I don't. It just didn't click for me. Wait, and so you don't love dogs? it was the same with this one. I don't love the Isle of Dogs. And I do like dogs, and they were mistreated in that movie, unfortunately. Uh, but I, to me, and I can't explain this, so, you know, if, don't listen to me, but to me, this just didn't feel like watching a Wes Anderson movie. And that's ironic, because Wes Anderson's style has never been more prominent than in this movie. Um, but I, I don't know, just it, the, when I was watching it, I just didn't have a Wes Anderson experience. I absolutely love the conceit of this movie. Matt, like you, I'm a big anthology fan uh maybe if you guys wanted we could do like an anthology movie segment another time or something like that i think that'd be really cool and i love this one you know it's stories of of this newspaper um but i just none of them really worked for me that well they were all like cool and i could admire all of them but i it just didn't click unfortunately um and we can talk more about the specific segments you would probably like this movie more than me. I would recommend it. If you're a Wes Anderson fan, I would say you would probably like this. If you're somebody who's new to Wes Anderson, I think this would be a really fun ride. You've probably not seen something like this before. But Tyler, I'm going to piggyback on what you said. If you're somebody who like specifically does not like Wes Anderson, I really don't think you're going to like this one. This isn't going to be like a, oh, I get it now kind of thing. Because I feel like he doubles down on, yeah, on his style. And I've, I frankly don't think the sort of like emotional stubs, substance that was there in his previous films is present in this one. So for me, there was less to enjoy. Um, but hey, you never know. Give it a shot. You might like it. Also, speaking of uh, Wes Anderson, I just saw a commercial recently for Bergdorf Goodman that was directed by Wes Anderson. And it was uh, pretty interesting. Hmm. What was that like? Um, well, obviously the arts, the, the film style got me right away. I'm like, is this a new Wes Anderson, like movie? Like he just came out with French dispatch. What is this? And then I just saw <laughs> yeah. Bergdorf Goodman. I'm like, Oh yeah, that's cool. it's a commercial Yeah, hey. for overpriced stuff. True. I won't say no to high art in a, in commercial zones if applied right. Uh, let's move it. This movie surrounds um, Arthur Howitzer, who is the editor, founding editor um, of the, the French Dispatch of the Liberty Kansas Evening Sun. And in the beginning, we are going to move into like more beginning plot details. Um, so if you don't want to know anything about the plot of this movie, then please come back to us later. Spoiler warning, if you have not seen the following movie, Please go watch that movie and come back or accept the consequences. But in the beginning of this movie, Arthur dies, right? And publication is going to be suspended following one final issue of the French Dispatch. And this is where we get all the little segments. The first segment that we get 
is the cycling reporter. This is Owen Wilson as Sazerac, who is cycling around Anhui. Owen Wilson, who was Wes Anderson's first writing partner, and I think uh, produced his co-wrote his best films, plays Sazerac here. He's cycling around Anhui. What do you guys think about this first segment? That's really the majority of what he got to do. Yeah, I I agree with with that point that he was probably underused, but he def there were other actors that were way more underused than he was in this movie. Um, yeah, but Owen Wilson's one of like the main um, Wes Anderson actors, so that was a shock. Okay, me. that yeah, true. Yeah, I um this really just didn't leave much of an impression on me. Again, it was immaculately filmed. There were clever lines and everything. Um, but and there's a there's one gag where he's cycling along and then he rolls down stairs unexpectedly. That's like the exact joke that is pulled with Danny Glover in the Royal Tenenbaums, and it, I I thought it was much more effective in that movie. Um, and th- this is another thing I have to say about the movie is I mentioned this a couple of episodes ago when we first saw this is that I would have much rather read this as a book than seen it as the movie because the dialogue is so intelligent and so polished and dense that when it was coming out of actors mouths i'm like i i can't keep up with this like maybe i'm just stupid but like i don't know it just it just seemed like too much you sure it wasn't because of the couple in front of you guys uh, yeah, there was a couple in front of us who was came in late, blocking the screen, um, doing just doing too much in a movie theater, and I moved away from you guys as to avoid that. I want to say I just want to go back and re- really quick say though I did enjoy it as someone who's fresh faced and relatively new to the Wes Anderson formula. I thought it was I thought it was good. Yeah. It, it was, uh, I thought this first segment was un- unmemorable for me. But then we get to the first big story. This movie contains three, three big stories. And the first one is known as the Concrete Masterpiece. This is where the reporter is Tilda Swinton as J.K.L. Berenson. J.K.L. was the name of Johnny Depp's character on SpongeBob SquarePants one time. I don't know why I remember that, uh, but I did. His surfer character. But Tilda Swinton is giving a lecture on a mentally unstable artist who is played by Benicio Del Toro, who, while in prison, paints an abstract painting of one of the prison guards played by Lea Sedu. Adrian Brody is like an art dealer who profits on Del Toro's art, makes a star, makes him a star in the art world, and then wants more. Uh, I thought Adrian Brody really knocked this out of the park. He was one of the few enjoyable parts for me. Benicio Del Toro, too. Um... How did you guys feel about the concrete masterpiece? Was it the most enjoyable, middle, last? It was definitely the middle for me when I when I look back at it. Um, I enjoyed just the um, the setup and just the the way this every, that everything kind of played out. Tyler, how about you? I, I thought I was, I also agree that was my the middle of the three for me. Um, I, I did like the Benicio Del Toro part. I thought the Tilda Swinton parts were, like, not needed. I didn't think they were that good. They could have been cut. Um, mm. And it could have been set up differently. But um, I think it kind of dragged a little bit too long in the middle um, of it. But I think Adrian Brody, phenomenal. Benicio Del Toro. Lea Sedu, um was great, too. 
So I, I definitely like that. Um, I thought it was very funny at parts, um, especially like the entire ending scene. Like I was laughing probably the most during the movie during that. So I did really enjoy it. Yeah, Lacey Du is like very authoritative in this and it like really, really comes through. Um, so I was impressed with that. I agree. The Tilda Swinton stuff was like, I thought the humor of it fell flat. I, mm-hmm. I like really hate to be so critical of this movie. Um, but, you know, maybe some people would have thought it was funny. I don't know. Um, here's one thing that I really don't understand. What, what's going on with Henry Winkler in this movie? What's going on with the Fonz? <laughs> Does he have a line? I don't remember. I think he did. I think he had a couple, but nothing like substantial. No, he had. I, he had to have had more than Willem Dafoe, though. In yeah, the, that's in, the true. in the later segment. Yeah, this is the thing: is that Wes's Anderson's cast just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's like monster blood, and I, I just at a certain point, like not everyone can be. A full character which i think is fine um but i think his next movie it's said to like have his biggest cast ever and i'm like i don't how that's, big it's just gonna it be go? an mcu film that's why yeah. <laughs> it's just the next avengers yeah that's that's why they ended the phase and the original avengers left like we gotta be in wes anderson movies <laughs> yeah at the end of the segment uh the other adrian brody and the reason I brought that up was Henry Winkler and Bob Balaban play Brody's uncles who like mostly just stand there throughout this, this segment. Um, not that they're not great. I love both of them, but I, I was just wondering what like their agent said to them was going to happen in this movie. At the latest unveiling of Del Toro's character's art, it's revealed that he created a series of, of frescoes on the concrete walls of the prison, so therefore Brody's character can't sell them. He gets PO'd, and like there was this this weird shot, like a POV shot of Del Toro in a wheelchair, who's like <laughs> wheeling towards Brody, and like I don't I don't know if I'd seen anything like that before. They're throwing things at each other, and I don't know. It was just so like visually new to me that it, it was striking. It was almost like the the shot in the card counter. Uh, where they're going through the prison and (laughs) it was like so gnarly it like shook me in my seat it was a lot like that so i I appreciated it for that even though i didn't love this yeah there was a lot of movement from del toro yet the camera stayed (laughs) put in play it was very odd yes i agree yeah i thought the same thing it was was an interesting shot I i was quite impressed by it yeah same i would say this is I don't know. This is either the first, my favorite or second favorite um, of the segments. Because unless you guys, do you guys have any more thoughts on the Concrete Masterpiece? I'm good. No, I'm, I'm all set. We'll move to the second one. This is Revisions to a Manifesto. The writer here is Francis McDormand as Lucinda Kremens, who reports on a student protest movement that starts out over, I believe, male students at a university wanting to get access to the female dorms um it was it was a little unclear to me at the time tim chalamet plays zeffirelli who's like a de facto leader of the revolt mcdormand revises his manifesto and has an affair with him uh, while she is while she is visiting his parents it was interesting to see what a, a wes anderson sex scene looked like it was like just a shot of the door and like squeaking and it lasted for three seconds and i'm like oh okay 
Interesting. Uh, what did you guys think of revisions to a manifesto? So that's that's my last of the three, and I love Francis McDormand, so I'm sad to say that. Um, I definitely liked the beginning. I thought that it definitely opened, and I was interested. But the whole Timothy Chalamet like conflict with the students, I just could not get into, and like I was not interested at all in that. So it dragged way too long for me. Well, don't forget that whole subplot where like the one kid goes off to war, and then yeah, like, his just, friend oh, kills Lord. himself. Nonsense. Yeah, like, the one the one kid goes off to war, and like they just stop the movie to like put in a play of yeah. these real events and i it was one of those it was indicative of like the bike going down the stairs thing is like while i was watching that i was just wanting to go watch rushmore and like see max's <laughs> heaven and hell plays or like his <laughs> his adaptation of serpico like I, don't, I just feel like there were tricks used in this movie that were so much better in in previous films but maybe i've just i've seen those movies too many i times, i do want to bring up to the whole chess thing when like it <laughs> went way yeah. too long i just i just want to give my unpopular take here i don't i don't understand the chalamet train i i'm right <laughs> he, there with he, you buddy he, he's fine he's he's not he's nothing special in my right opinion there with you. well be, you better uh you better uh prepare yourself because i I want to say it was Tom Holland that said he wants Tim Chalamet to play Harry did, Osborne. Yeah. So I, I I could take it or leave it. Well, Tyler, don't look up because you're going to have to see <laughs> Tim Chalamet one more time this year. Yeah. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah, that is true. I will. Um, he so Zeffirelli also has tension with Juliet, who's played by Lena Kodri. Um, when things reach a breaking point with city authorities or university authorities, uh, McDormand advises Chalamet and Kudry to basically just go have sex and enjoy their youth. I thought there was an interesting idea in this segment about like the I- idealistic youth having to sort of give up what they want in order to like savor what they can during their youth. Right, almost like I don't know this sort of nihilistic, like you just kind of have to get your own kicks sort of thing. Maybe I'm misinterpreting it. I'm not saying it was the one interpretation I got, but there was this interesting kernel of an idea in here. Um, it, it didn't fully get there for me, but at the end, Zeffirelli is killed a few weeks later trying to fix something on top of a radio tower, which their student group is operating out of. And then McDormand adapts some of it into that play. And that's the end of Revisions to a Manifesto. I think we're all in agreement that this was our least favorite. Am I correct? That is correct. Third one, we move to the private dining room of the police commissioner. I thought this one had a lot of creative stuff in it. Uh, This one is focused around the writer Roebuck Wright, played by Jeffrey Wright, uh, who has a perfect memory for everything he's ever written. He is being interviewed by Liev Shriver on TV, and he is telling the story um, back in the past where he is set to have dinner with a police commissioner, played by Matthew Almerick, who is prepared by the lieutenant and chef Nescafier, played by Stephen Park, when the commissioner's son is kidnapped. What did you guys think of this one? 
this this one was my favorite of all of them mm-hmm. like Same you here. said it was very creative um like at one point i just want to point out like there's this chase scene that just becomes an animated film and it's uh, hilarious i thought it works so well mm-hmm. but i think jeffrey wright kills it um there's a lot of twists and turns that it's just like that's there's just points where you're just like what is going on and i love that i think it worked well this is the one that reminded me of the most of grand budapest hotel it kind of had that similar storytelling feel so i i really enjoyed this one um the the leave schreiber stuff i forgot i was just telling mike before we started i forgot leave schreiber was even in it so i feel like the whole talk show thing was odd that they (laughs) they put that in it wasn't necessary but i mean other than that i really enjoyed it matt what about you I pretty much second everything Tyler said, especially that animated sequence where they're like in the chase scene and then they, they like crash and then get out of the car and then they get back in the car and then they drive away again. And then it's just, it's, it's just so zany at parts, but it's also pretty grounded as far as the subject matter with the kidnapping. And, um, it's just, it's a, it's so unique and it. I, I just enjoyed it. I just want to bring up a point real real quick and no one does shootouts like Wes Anderson just <laughs> it's always just two groups of people just exchanging gunfire like crazy yeah. uh, that's the same in uh Grand Budapest and it's just always hilarious to just see all these people standing still firing at each other from like across the street <laughs> yeah True. it's uh it turns out that the son has been kidnapped by a criminal syndicate a syndicate who demand the release of an accountant played by Willem Dafoe who like have all their secrets and I think you're right Matt that it, I don't remember him having a line in this I'm sure he did I he don't did, remember I think it. when he was first introduced <laughs> oh like when I, I am thinking of one other chronic criminally underused actor in this movie but I'm gonna save that for the end because once once we finish this I want you guys to tell me what you think the most underused actor in this movie was well, I, I think I'm reading your mind right now, and I, I agree with you if we're thinking of the same person, so I, I can't wait to find out who it is. Um, Lieutenant Escoffier is sent to prepare the criminal syndicate a meal. He poisons all of them. He has to poison himself. Um, I was just going to spoil another show, but I won't. The animated sequence, <laughs> and there were a couple of really touching moments. I thought the most touching moments of the movie were actually in this one, where there's kind of a spotlight Put down on Jeffrey Wright, and he tells um, this this monologue about how you know, kind of being a traveling journalist is always so lonely. You're never close to home, um, but that when people would invite him to have a meal and make food for him, that was like his comfort. That was his sort of soul spot during his travels. So I, I thought that was very sweet. Uh, and there was another moment where Stephen Park, who plays Lieutenant Nescafier is like this was so like quirky and odd but was oddly touching where he says that when he tasted the poison that it it was a new flavor for him and that doesn't often happen for chefs and so he was like overjoyed to be poisoned because it gave him a final experience before death um i thought that was very interesting i i agree yeah, so that I uh, come to think of it, that's probably my favorite segment. Um, I think part of it, I was just kind of like beaten down by how much I didn't like this and how disappointed I was because I wanted nothing more than to like this. But say eh, la vie, it happens. And then we get an epilogue of Arthur dying. They come together to write his obituary, and we're out. 
that's the French dispatch. I um, I can't wait for the next Wes Anderson. He's somebody who, even if he makes a, a movie or two that I don't like, I'm always excited for the next thing. Final thoughts on the French dispatch. Well, I just want to circle back to the question. Who do you guys think was the most criminally underused actor in this movie? Um, I'm going to guess your answer. I, I, I think I think you might know what it is. Yeah, go for it. I think it's Sir Ronan. I was thinking the same. Oh, you know what? I it was between I, I was between Sir Ronan and Christoph Waltz. Oh, oh yeah, I forgot Christoph Waltz. Was yeah, that. I even <laughs> he plays Absolutely. the friend the friends of Zeffirelli's parents, right? Yeah, I think so. Well, I mean that that says it right there. I can't even remember who he was, but he was in it. I mean, Saoirse Ronan, I, I don't know. I, I guess I was just most disappointed with her because she doesn't come in until so late in the mm-hmm. movie. So when she finally got there, I was like, oh, yeah, great. And then, you know, you get a couple of good shots of, you know, her sitting there and then her mm-hmm. having a good line or two, and then that's it. So and I thought dead. it was her. Yeah. So she's, I don't know. She's another one. I just feel like I haven't seen her in a while. Not since what, Lady Bird? Or no, Little Women maybe? Yeah, a little bit. Well, which I, I guess wasn't that long ago. Um, are we going to have to do Marsden versus Ronan? Hmm. Well, I already know my pick for that. Was that she sounds also... like, like, like superheroes. Marsden versus Ronan. <laughs> yeah. She was also in a Into the Grizzly Maze. Oh, are you serious? I, oh. I'm yeah, just is kidding. Still no, Marsden? I'm just kidding. She wasn't in Into the Grizzly Maze. <laughs> yeah, she, she played the, the bear in that. Yeah. Jinx. <laughs> You could tell by the bear's blue eyes. Yeah, she was. Oh, I forgot. She was an Ammonite last year, which I oh, did right. watch. Her and Kate Winslet. I wow, did watch that. There's a lot that. of period lesbian dramas coming out lately. Well, I... <laughs> that's we're here for this, it. We support this it. and Benedetta. <laughs> this is the second one we've mentioned today. This is true. I liked Ammonite. Um, not a great movie. A lot of just like scratching, using fingers to like scratch things. That that was my main impression of it, but um, I I liked it. Yeah, hope to see her again uh, very soon. I thought she was underused in this, but at the same time, when you have a cast that's so large, you just everybody can't be the most developed character. Mm-hmm. All right, we're gonna take a break now, and we're gonna come back with a movie that I liked more. This is Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog. All right, we're back with our review of The Power of the Dog. This is written and directed by Jane Campion, known for films The Piano, Bright Star, In the Cut, The Portrait of a Lady. This is based on the novel by Thomas Savage. It was one of the most anticipated movies of the year and a movie that I very much enjoyed and have very much enjoyed thinking about. Uh, But what about you guys? Give me general thoughts and would you recommend this movie? Matt, how about we start with you this time? Um, So I got to be honest. I was kind of indifferent towards it. Um, so, like, there was it was a movie that I watched. And, yes, there are definitely things to talk about. But overall, I, I just it didn't really leave much of an impression on me. The acting was good for what it was. Um, and, I mean, there were a lot of parts to like, but it just didn't really resonate with me at all. All right, fair enough. Tyler, how about you? Um, I think you hit the nail on the head with you when you said that it was a movie you like to think about. I think it was one that, like, when you, the more you think about it, the more you're like, oh, my God, like, that's something I didn't even notice while watching it. 
because this movie really does I don't want to get into spoiler territory but it definitely does stuff that like if you you're not paying attention to and you're not supposed to be but when you think about it you're like oh that was there and I missed it so I, I, I did really enjoy this movie I thought the cast was phenomenal um, it was very slow burn, but you know, thinking back on it, I, it just came even better. Which a lot of movies for me, I enjoy watching, and then when I think about it, I'm like, that's awful. Like that was kind of stupid. This was the opposite. Like I liked it more the more I thought about it afterwards. Yeah, that's every movie that we see together is we talk about it for two minutes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, exactly. This is stupid. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I on the first watch. I felt the way about it that I often feel about Jane Campion movies is that there are so many moments of like brilliance in this movie, some like really unique touches that make her style stand out. And like, I I haven't seen this from anybody else. She always gets really strong performances out of her actors, sometimes career best. Um, In like the case of like Anna Paquin, this was like Anna Paquin's first role and she got this outstanding performance by her but my enjoyment of the film kind of waxed and waned a little bit i never disliked this movie um but there were you know kind of ebbs and flows to it um i did watch it a second time or i had it on um and like you said tyler you just notice so many different things this is definitely a movie that rewards re-watching and i think requires re-watching uh, which I, I i never like to say about movies um, but it, it's definitely more rewarding when you revisit it. Uh, this revolves around uh, two brothers who are ranchers, and one of them gets married, and that disrupts their relationship and their life going forward. And this really revolves around four characters. This movie is set in Montana in 1925, and we start off the movie with Phil, who is played by Benedict Cumberbatch, And we have George, who is played by Jesse Plemons. What did you guys think of these performances? Why don't we start with Cumberbatch? Where does this sort of rank in his performances, and what did you think of it generally? I thought his accent was kind of awkward. Um, But as far as the physical acting and just the amount of effort you could tell he was putting in, I kind of gave that, I would give that a pass. Um, I think it was definitely one of the better performances I've seen just in general this year and one of the best ones I've seen him do in quite a while. I agree. Tyler, how about you? Yeah, so I, I agree with that. I, I thought it, his accent I thought was good, but like at parts it kind of slipped a bit where it sounded really strange. But I think it was a great performance. I think he really had this um, way to like turn it from like, you know, like um, what's the way I'm looking for? He was kind of this angry like domineering man but like he could turn that in a second and then go right back so i thought that was a good performance that um but yeah i think his accent did kind of sound odd at points so i agree with you there matt absolutely phil is such a well-written character and i feel like phil even just himself has like two halves of the movie in which he's almost playing two different characters and i thought cumberbatch really nailed both um like you said, the the accent to me was a little off-putting at times, but at the same time, I was not in Montana in 1925. Yeah. So, you know, what do I know? Um, and I, I think the direction of this really 
um, is entirely complementary to his performance. Early on in the film, we get this early rift between Phil and George, who are brothers. They have been successful ranchers for uh, a couple of decades and a half, about 25 years since they became it. They've become successful. Uh, and it seemed to me, I don't know what you guys think, it seemed to me that Phil was very dedicated to keeping things the way that they were. He wanted a tight relationship with his brother. He kind of wanted to be um, living the rancher life and the life of Bronco Henry, which is a character that we got to have a a fuller conversation about. But as George pulls away and kind of wants to change things, he doesn't want to go with his brother anymore. There are so many shots in this movie of phil of cumberbatch having this masculine this hyper uh rigid face and then as soon as his brother does something that's quite not on his wavelength the facade just like drops and you can tell that he's like incredibly hurt and vulnerable and that happens like several times he gets several close-ups of that and i thought that was a beautiful touch that was uh highlighted the performance in the best possible way Okay, but from the logic of the characters in the movie, can you really blame George for not wanting to be in the situation that he's in with his brother? No. I mean, his brother's physically and verbally abusive to to him at multiple points. Well, he's phys- verbally abusive to him, like right in the first scene, calling him fatso and just like ranking on him for no reason. Yeah, I... I personally saw that as a defense. Yeah. I think it's one, is that Phil is not the nicest person in the world too i thought that was it it was defensive to kind of um cover up his own insecurities which is not an excuse for poor behavior but that's what i saw it because i feel like it was specifically turned on when he was kind of in a moment of like almost gonna going to be losing authority i don't know i just I, i didn't pick up on that the first watch well the only watch i i don't know maybe i missed that well, it was like when the people in the restaurant were playing the, the, the player piano and, you know, he was like, oh, okay, you guys turn that stuff down. And then when he's kind of in this position of like, he's trying to entertain his guys, he's trying to be the big man. And when that's not working out, then all of a sudden he turns into a jerk and starts screaming at everybody. Um, so that it seemed to be his sort of um, immature strategy for regaining some sort of stature. I don't know, if, Tyler, if you saw that at all. I, I, I think I agree with that. I think he was stuck in the Bronco Henry um, years. You know, he, he desperately wanted to remain with that. So he was trying to be like this overbearing authority figure, kind of like how he presented him to kind of keep that. And I think he saw George as like that kind of figure that he's keeping safe. Um, and when George kind of pulling away for his own life, he's he doesn't want that because now he's losing the, the lifestyle that he's been trying to keep for so long. So I definitely agree. It's a defense mechanism that he's doing this over hyper masculinity thing to just be like, to try to regain and be like his mentor. As we learn later in the film, we are going to get into plot details. Now we're not going to talk about the very end. I, right can away. I bring up a plot oh. detail right now about Benedict Cumberbatch? Yeah. I just wanted to give the warning for everybody, but okay. go ahead. Spoiler warning. If you have not seen the following movie, Please go watch that movie and come back or accept the consequences. I, what, what, is, what is up with the way he says piano? 
Panano. Panano. Did you play the Panano? Panano. I, I, I guess maybe that's how they said it. I don't know. <laughs> I was wondering if that was like a. It, they did it twice, so it must have been intentional. But was that supposed to be like a thing, yeah. or was that just like a? <laughs> he's like, I, I. He just kind of improvised that. I mean, I took it as like he was just trying to mock her, like. But it, doesn't he say it like even not to her at one point? He's like, oh, she, she plays the banana, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't know. That's a good point. Uh, it's interesting that you say like this aversion to change. I think part of that is they've been so successful. And the biggest part of it, I think, is as we learn later in the film, is that there is nothing um, on the other side for Phil. If his brother moves on and sort of breaks up their nucleus of the way that life has been, it it's it wouldn't have uh, you know worked out for Phil to live the sort of life that we learn that he would want to live. Uh, but we can we can get into that later. This starts with Phil and George uh, coming to this place to rest. We see Phil, you know, trying to be kind of the big man on campus. George kind of isn't having any of it. We have this interesting scene. I got to introduce the the two other characters. We have Kirsten Dunst here um, as Rose. Kirsten Dunst, just she's always phenomenal. I got to say one thing about her is that she is one of the best like facial actresses the expressions that she can pull out like she doesn't even need dialogue she can just say it all on her face and you totally get what her character is all about and she uses that to full effect in this movie and then we have cody smith mcphee who plays peter who is her son um, who is an aspiring surgeon and he is someone who to me striked as very hyper-aware, hyper-observant, and that plays in a very keen scene later on. Uh, but we have Phil and George. They come to this place. George meets Rose. They fancy each other. I, To me, I'm just going to say it now. They're in the running for our cutest couple of the year, especially considering that they are a real couple. That, that's something I didn't even realize until after I watched the movie. I didn't, I didn't even catch that or realize that that was a thing. Um, but as far as the movie is concerned... I gotta say, that escalated really quickly, which kind of brings up a point, one of the things I didn't like about this movie. The time jumps were pretty jarring to me. I don't know if they, I don't know if you guys noticed it too, but. I, I mean, I noticed one them, in particular? Well, they, they, from, I, I mean, I agree with them. Like, that jump from her, him consoling her to the marriage was pretty quick. Yeah, and there's a couple more points that I wrote down. Ah, 1925, whatever. <laughs> I just want to point out, though, that for Fargo fans, this is the second time on screen that Plemons and Kirsten Dunst have been married uh, in Fargo Season 2. They were the main stars as a married couple. So, And Keith Carradine was in Fargo Season 1, but played by Patrick Wilson in the second season. But still, <laughs> it's oh, a Fargo reunion. <laughs> no kidding. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, I, so they get married. George and Rose get married very quickly. There is a scene where they are dancing out in the meadow. Um, and Plemons, I, like, I'm just waiting for Plemons to like be bad in something. Like, I, I just want him to be... Breaking Bad. Did you see Jungle Cruise? I did not, but he's the, bad, he's the main villain. <laughs> okay, I, bad is in a bad performance. Oh, oh I think you meant like... <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was going to say, he played a neo-Nazi in Breaking Bad and killed a child. That's true. Spoiler Todd alert was, for a seven-year-old movie, eight-year-old movie, or TV show. 
Todd was a complicated character, but um, yeah, he. I'm waiting for him to have a a, a badly executed performance because he just. I haven't seen him do one yet, and it's you know it's really a cra- crazy to me. Um, he nails this scene where he's like crying, and Rose asks him what's wrong, and he's like, it's just. I just wanted to say how wonderful it is not to be alone. And for I think that was maybe my favorite part in the movie. So I just had to mention it. And he absolutely nails it. I think, and it also... Oh, go ahead. I was going to just say, I think Plemons has this like really good ability to play this kind of like awkward, endearing character. Where like even like you can feel his character is kind of insecure like in a lot of his roles. Where like he doesn't know what to say, but he's trying. Like I think Antlers was a good one like that, too. Like and he also plays the the brother of the star, so that's his forte here. Yeah. But I think he has that great like you know he's not sure what he's doing, but like he's gonna try to do what like he thinks is right. And I think he has that he plays that so well as like this kind of awkward, um, endearing character. Yeah, it, I absolutely agree. Him, him and uh, Kirsten Dunn's rose together are so wonderful. And I think it was an important point that Campion highlighted their love, their romance, to sort of juxtapose it to another romance that was um, not not looked upon favorably at the time. Uh, but once they are married, we have this absolute showdown that goes down, and that is between Rose and Phil. They... Uh, Phil is just absolutely a tormentor of Rose. We have this, a couple of incredible scenes. This is one of the direction choices that I thought was really, really good, is that so many times throughout the movie, Phil is placed above Rose in some capacity, whether it be during the piano ban- or panano banjo scene <laughs> or during when he sees her drinking in the alley. Um, is He's this tormentor. He's on her mind all the time he's getting under her skin in her nerves and he's always just there she's always looking up at him this towering figure that she just can't get rid of and i thought that was a brilliant touch i just wanted to bring in another thing i think that fit really well that that whistling he did the, to taunt her i thought was really done well done like that was kind of eerie and like creepily like it kind of it kind of seemed like it coming out of nowhere and i thought that was a really well done thing yeah, the piano music in this movie, um, I found to be like very chilling. Like even the piece that she was practicing, uh, that I, I don't know, that's just like I found it very creepy. And then he plays it so much better on the banjo. Um, that that was a wonderful showdown scene. To me, this movie is all about projection, in that the characters are denying these things that. Um, they are themselves or they're trying to put forth an image of what they want to be but aren't really for instance rose in the beginning says i don't favor drinking and then later we see her turn to alcoholism largely to deal with the the stress of living with phil um i don't know what do you guys thought i the second time i watched this i suspected that she had been an alcoholic before am i am i alone in thinking that i mean i i i could see that but that's just another example for me of like this movie just kind of like jumps like oh she doesn't like drinking and then like two scenes later she's an alcoholic it just it it was very jarring to me and it didn't I didn't like it 
Fair enough. Tyler, what'd you think? I, I could definitely see that. Um, I think with especially the scene later when they're talking about his um, Cody Smith McPhee's character's father's alcoholism. It was kind of a touch like, oh yeah, he was an alcoholic, but she was not. Like, I, I kind of got the sense that you know maybe that wasn't entirely truthful. Yeah. So we have her saying she hates drinking. She turns to alcoholism. We have George who has this rancher background and has uh, even before that he was unsuccessful did not seem to have a direction and now he wants to invite the governor and his wife over to his house um, and sort of act like he is um, pals with them but when they get there the whole evening is awkward no one really has anything to say I thought Dunst did just a fantastic job when he's asking her to play the piano and she just like is so nervous that she can't do it and then we have phil who is such a masculine performer a macho performer um but you know that he is hiding certain things you know he does that thing where he's talking about um someone getting prostitutes for him and george where they were younger and he's doing that thing that like a lot of young men do where he's talking about his exploits, even though, you know, you know that there probably weren't as many exploits as, as he says there were. Um, I, I thought that was a really brilliant sort of through line throughout the movie. How do you guys feel about Peter, particularly Peter's relationship to Phil? Tyler, how did you view that? Um, I thought that was an interesting thing. Um, it definitely kind of uh, changed dramatically over the fil- over the course of the film into kind of like a, a homoerotic type of relationship, like um, that you kind of you kind of as it unraveled, like the Bronco Henry stuff unraveled. You kind of realize like this is he's tra- he wants to repeat this with him, kind of. Um, but I thought it was definitely an interesting. That that uh, this is part of what sets up the twist later. That really like once you think about it, like you're like oh that's crazy. Like that that's because you not, you didn't see where this was going. So I thought it was mm-hmm. really well done. I um I also thought that that was rushed. Um. But what I do want to do is I want to cite uh, so, I when I when I walked walked out of, or not walked out but, finished watching this movie. I felt like I was missing something, so I did go on the YouTube and sort of watch a couple of videos on breakdowns and stuff, and like people's thoughts on this movie, much like you guys are providing, which obviously you guys thought way more about this movie than I did after the fact. Um, in one, so as far as the the relationship between mm-hmm. Phil and Peter, I thought it was kind of uncomfortable, mostly because the age difference. And the sort of, it came off as predatory to me because Phil was such a terrible person. He was set up to be such a terrible person. I thought he was just being like a predator, honestly. Um, But then I, I, the the YouTube channel, I think it was called like Just Westerns. Um, Yeah, I believe it was Just Westerns. They, um, the, they were basically talking about how like, I forget where, but it was talking about how Basically, it, the movie alluded to Bronco Henry being somewhat of an older mentor figure as well, compared to Phil. So, almost, so in a way, 
there's a way of looking at it where like Phil could have been sort of manipulated and abused as a young impressionable person by Bronco Henry and is thus sort of re in him reiterating that he's just projecting his trauma onto this to um Peter so for that and for something like that um I thought it was like I said, it was uncomfortable but I think it was if that's what the intention was it was written out pretty well um but yeah it, it, it definitely made me uncomfortable Mm. let's break down this character of bronco henry because he looms large over this movie in the beginning we get mentions of him um we learn that he is the one who taught phil and george how to ranch um and how to be successful in that industry and he does and then the interesting thing is that we is that phil has this secret place this kind of secret clearing where there's a little pond and there's some trees that he goes to kind of get get a respite from everything. And one of these times when Peter comes to live with them, he wanders into the secret place kind of on accident and he goes into George's secret spot. And in the secret spot are these like magazines with uh, nude men posing and there was this really subtle, you see, uh, printed on the top corner of those um, Bronco Henry. And so you get the illusion that there was, um, you know, something in Phil's past. Uh, that Bronco Henry is perhaps not just a man who taught them how to ranch. And then I feel like from that point, because Phil does catch Peter in his secret place, from that point, we get like the second half of Phil where he turns from this like completely outrageous monster into something more of like a careful, maybe a little calculating, um, but also very vulnerable person. I think there's another big allusion to the relationship between him and Bronco Henry and the fact that he like touches himself with the handkerchief with Bronco Henry's initials on him. Yeah. I just want to point that out. So I think it's very implied. Yeah, yeah that was... And that was also... So I'm going to say that was also placed right after his ranch crew is having a, a nude frolic <laughs> rocky rocky three style in the... I, and then you you wonder why they cast benedict cumberbatch <laughs> all right matt went to puns R us this afternoon that was the first, that was the first yeah. thing i thought after that scene and i wanted to use it so for better or worse there it is yeah, so we, we have this incredible repression within Phil um, of his homosexual feelings. Um, and so he sort of overperforms this this image of himself that maybe he that isn't his part of his true identity. Um, and Peter kind of unlocks it in him. We have this very pivotal scene where they're looking at the hills. And there is a parallel earlier scene where Phil is standing with his crew and they're looking out and they're all like, Phil, what do you see out there? And he's like, well, if you can't see it, then there's nothing out there. Whereas immediately when Peter is looking at the hills, he sees uh, the symbol of this dog, um, which, you know, is seems to be indicative that he is seeing Phil um, in, in a different light than everybody else's. Tyler. Oh, so I just wanted to bring back that Matt you said earlier. It seemed rushed, the relationship there, like to feel like how he behaved towards him. But I think it was kind of like, you know, Phil's got this hyper masculine thing to kind of uh, kind of repress 
his identity of like him and Bronco Henry that to the point where he finally found someone like him and that's why he treated him differently like he's like this is someone I don't have to pretend with that's how I took it at least I mean that could have been interpreted differently but that's well, how well, I took so I didn't feel it was as rushed because I felt like mm. that's why he kind of connected with him I, I could see that uh, that's not the last point that I thought was rushed, though. So we'll we'll get to that in a bit. Also, yeah, I I absolutely did not see the dog on the first watch. <laughs> that oh, was another thing. I did the shadow, right? It was, that's yeah, what I yeah. Uh, which I think I think that I mean I was I was trying to be fair and give the movie a chance, but I think that was the point when I'm like, I'm, I am I missing something here? It was just an advertisement for uh, the Rock's Crypto yeah. Super Dog. <laughs> you have to stare at the the red dot for thirty seconds, and, and then you see the like dog. <laughs> and you, you know what, though, I know this is a podcast all about watching movies and analyzing them, and I totally get that. But for, I think a big part of this movie why I didn't like it is because a lot of these points you guys are bringing up, I didn't get by watching it the first time, and I had to watch someone else sort of say what they thought and point out what they thought. And then I'm like, okay, yeah, I see that. So, like, I just, I don't know, I feel like I, I must have missed something with this, but I, I'm not, I'll, I'll save the rest of that bit for the end. But Well, like that, I said, I definitely didn't pick it up right away on the first watch. It was when I was thinking about, like, different points that I really started to kind of get some of this in. So I definitely yeah. would have liked a rewatch. I wish I did because... I feel like that would have been interesting. Yeah, I, I will say it was beneficial, at least for me. Uh, we have been talking about Phil as a performer. I just I don't want to imply that like everything that he does is a performer. I mean, I you know definitely part of his identity is as a rancher, um, and definitely is as sort of a provocateur. Definitely, um, that just seems to be part of who he is. But but Peter does unlock this more vulnerable, like even kinder side to him um they go out together they hunt for a rabbit and phil starts to make a rope for peter phil gets a wound on his hand which is going to be important later and then we have this story this scene where uh, phil is making the rope for peter and he tells him that bronco henry did not just teach him how to ranch um, but that he saved his life by laying together with him during during a nasty storm. Um, and this maybe seems to be a, a point of genesis for a certain part of Phil, um, which sort of leads to a lot of what he has done afterwards. All right, after that, Phil falls ill, um, and you can see that the wound around his hand is black. Uh, this is very much like if anybody's seen The Shape of Water, Michael Shannon's fingers in that movie which are incredibly nasty uh not quite as nasty here but still pretty bad um phil's last act is that he he gets dressed up before he is set to die and i'm still like pondering this is like why he gets dressed up all nice do, do you think he wanted to dress up nice to go see peter to give him this rope or do you think he knew he was going to die so he got dressed I, I didn't know what to make of that what do you guys think um i was unsure about that myself um but like i i kind of took the rope that he when he was looking at the rope he was kind of realizing what happened in my opinion so i'm not sure if he got dressed up to deliver the rope or not but maybe that is what it is maybe i'm just misinterpreting that 
I gotta be honest. I I kind of I was checked out from this movie at this point. I I just by this point I had lost interest in it. Um, so I didn't really think too much about it. So you would have scored this whole movie with Rush. You would have put in Tom Sawyer, some stuff from Twenty One Twelve. Well, look, well, look. I I was gonna save this for like the ending thoughts, but I I will say that as much as I did not like it, I'm not gonna say it was bad or that it, there's not stuff to like. But yeah, I I was kind of checked out by that point. Yeah, it's. Um... The doctor that checked out Phil's body says that it was potentially anthrax, but he wasn't sure exactly how he died. And when Peter gets the rope, he's in his bed, and I thought there was this really wonderful final moment where he has the rope. It's sort of this connection between him and Phil, and he puts it under his bed. And then the last thing that we see is him looking out the window at George and Rose, who are now sort of like freed in a sense, um, you know, George, even though he was in contention with his brother sometimes, like clearly loved his brother, but it, I feel like in a sense, Phil's death has kind of freed them in a way, especially Rose, um, sort of the death of her, her tormentor. Um, and it's this, this great juxtaposition between um, this, this love that is sort of allowed and this other maybe potential love, which... Um, had to be kept under wraps and i think it was well done in the scene at the funeral and that, where he says like when he goes up to his father he doesn't say anything about phil he just says hey rose would like if you guys came over for christmas i think it's just like an immediate like they're now like moving on like they can be an actual couple and then it's really cemented yeah at the end ending shot of the film <laughs> yeah absolutely also, Thomas and Mackenzie is in this movie. I saw her, and I was like, is that... Is it? And then I'm like, nah. And then I heard her speak, and I'm like, oh, yeah. That's very yeah. distinctive voice. Like, yeah, very it, distinctive. But, like, as soon as you hear it, like, you know who it is. <laughs> yeah. I was waiting for the 60s music to start playing. <laughs> yeah, it, is, it <laughs> yeah. is. Like like you guys had said earlier when we were discussing this, it was odd to see her like immediately after the lead of a movie to just be this small part that barely gets to do anything. Was this one? I was mean, this one delayed because of COVID? I'm not sure. Reason? It's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I I don't think anybody would say no to to working with Jane Campion. It, this it's never it, never a bad career move. It might have been one of those awards movies that was made a while ago, and now it's just finally getting full release. Oh, true. Well, if they did, it's paying off because uh, I believe that this is currently number two on Variety's Best Picture predictions, uh, right behind Belfast. At, excuse me, at number one, which I still haven't seen and I want to see, and, and right above King Richard. And according to Netflix, it's probably been streamed like seventeen billion times now. <laughs> In the yeah. first day. In the, yeah, in the first five <laughs> minutes. More people than exist on yes. Earth. Um. Benedict Cumberbatch is a front runner right now um, for for best actor. I believe he's currently number three behind Will Smith um, and Andrew Garfield for for King Richard and Tick Tick Boom, respectively. Kirsten Dunst is up there. Uh, Plemons and Smith McPhee. I'm not sure what their chances are. Maybe for a best supporting actor, 
turn. I'm not sure which of them would prevail or if both of them prevail. So that, that'll be an interesting I, I just want to bring up, since we're talking about it, Dunst has this incredible, in in this movie, like her performance to seem like as she moves along into alcoholism, she just seems so distraught. Like, and you can just see it on her. She just seems like she's falling apart. And it was so well done. Like, as the movie goes on, she's just increasingly, like, um, like spacing out, kind of. And, like, you just see her hair's a mess. She just looks so frazzled. And it was such an incredible, like, performance by her that just show her just falling apart until the end. Yeah, and she had, and at times she had this, like, desperate hope of, like, the life that she must have imagined she would have when she married George. Um, and that's so present, especially in this scene when she's talking about what she did when she was a little girl in school. Um, but like I said, Kirsten Dunst just always knocking it out of the park. You can see everything right on her face without her having to say it. We're going to talk much more about her next week uh, in a, a very favorable way. I think she's uh, incredible in everything she does. Uh, do you guys have final thoughts I, on I mean, the power of the dog? I just want to bring up the ending real quick, and I think this is a pivotal point. When um, uh, Peter looks out and sees George and Rose, you know, embracing and, like, free of Phil, he turns and gives the smile. And, like, it that turned the whole movie for me. Like, mm. you, th- I thought, like, when he cut up, you see him earlier cutting up a cow that likely died of anthrax, cutting the hide off. And it's set up earlier that he's a surgeon who's cutting open animals. So I thought nothing of that. You know, I thought he was just, you know, but it, then it makes it seem like he did this on purpose. That hmm. this was done, and that I think it was, because hmm. the starting hmm. quote, the starting quote of the movie, him narrating over is basically saying like, "What kind of boy would I be if I wasn't protecting my mother?" And this hmm. was like a whole plot to free. That's why he gave the, the hide to Phil, which Phil sees as this grand gesture. But then you kind of see that this character was a lot, in my opinion, a lot more. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like. Um, Methodical, not methodical. Um, uh, Maniacal. No, he's just hype, hyper aware of everything. <laughs> yeah, so yeah hyper aware. Like he's he's sinister. He's a lot more sinister than he was. Like he seemed yeah. this aloof character that like was just being mistreated by everyone. But like he was so aware of everything. And like I, it, that it comes back to a line he says earlier when he's like, "My father feared I was too strong." And yeah, you know, Phil true. laughs at that and like, oh, he was wrong. But no, he he was like, he was too smart. And like, in the end, I think he absolutely did it on purpose to kill Phil and get oh, him out I mean, of no, I, I, We do go ahead. I would say we do see that that very focused in shot of Phil's wounded hand mixing in the water with that hide. So I wow, that's that's a great thought. Well, that is one thing I did pick up um, pretty quickly. Um, was the fact that he knew what he was doing because there was a scene earlier when they were talking about how they have the dead cattle out in the in the hills with that have anthrax so to watch out for him and then when he went off by himself to get that hide I had a feeling at that point that that there was something off about that because he was wearing and the thing is he was wearing gloves when he was getting the hide too so he mm-hmm. knew yeah that that cattle probably had anthrax, so he he knew it. Um, and I will say that that plot twist was pretty well executed. I will give it that. But overall, as far as overall enjoyment, especially compared to some of the other stuff I've seen this year, I can't I can't place it at the top. 
Like, I, I can't see myself a few years from now thinking about this movie and being like, oh, wow, I got to go back and rewatch that. Fair enough. Yeah. I won't, I will say that, I will say don't, I won't, I can't say don't watch it because I think everyone needs to make their own opinion because it is a deep, complex, there's a lot of parts to it to unravel. It just, I compare it to Nomadland in as far as like overhype and. Oh, movies get that... off Nomadland. <laughs> Like movies that that everyone thinks are good and they're good. Well, no, I like this better than Nomadland. Oh, I, I like Nomadland better than this. I like this movie a lot, but I I will agree with you. It's not my favorite of the year. Um, I think we're gonna have to talk about it a lot more because it's. I think it's going to be a big, big awards contender, um, which I, I think it deserves. But I, I agree, it's not my favorite movie of the year either. It's you. You gotta dig on this movie. And even, you know, obviously even I didn't realize all the stuff that was going on in here. Yeah. I mean, again, I can't say don't watch it, but watch it. I would say watch it with tempered expectations and just kind of try and be open-minded about it. But also don't, you know, I don't know. I didn't like it, but that doesn't mean other people aren't going to like it. Well, luckily, if you're somebody who's listening to this, or if you're a human being, you're probably a, a smarter movie watcher than I am. Um, so I think you'll pick up on a lot of this stuff. I, I'm a really, I have to say, I don't know how you guys are. I'd be interested to hear. I'm a pretty dumb movie watcher. Like, 100%. if there's a twist in your movie, mm-hmm. I, it's probably going to work on me. I just don't think about things in no. advance, because I don't, I don't want to. I just want to let it wash over me. Yeah, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. I barely all... pick up the cues and I just forget them. Yeah. <laughs> Unless it's like that obvious, yeah, you can get it by me pretty easily. Yeah, see, for me, like, until I started really trying to take notes while I watch movies, I've had such a hard time talking about them because, like, there's. It's. You want to get the experience, but you also don't want to miss anything. So. Yeah. It's like a fine line to toe, I feel like. Which is why remember, it's good to rewatch movies, especially deep ones like this that have a lot of stuff going on. I remember when I was watching Captain America: The First Avenger and the twist that Steve Rogers was Captain America. I was like, "Whoa, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where did that come from?" The first time I watched Titanic, I, I thought I thought they were gonna make it. I don't know what was gonna happen. <laughs> what? I thought they made it. Uh, that is the power of the dog. That's the French dispatch. Please, we want to know what you think. We want you to write to us, interact with us, talk with us. Whether it could be about these movies, could be about if you've ever choked on a, a uh, those little paper things in popcorn, if you've ever dropped your water bottle <laughs> in the toilet at a movie theater. <laughs> Please let us know. Please write to us at silverscreensaverspod at gmail.com. That's all lowercase. Rate and review us, please, on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ScreensaversPod. And our Facebook is Silver Screen Savers Podcast. Matt, where can you be found on social media? You can find me on social media at MattyXSturds, M-A-T-T-Y-X-S-T-U-R-D-Z. That's on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Tyler, how about you? You can find me on uh, Instagram and Twitter at Tyler Sutkus, T-Y-L-E-R-S-U-T-K-U-S. And I can be found on Instagram and Twitter, Michael underscore Gallup, and on Letterboxd at M Gallup. Next week, guys, it's time. It's mm-hmm. time. Sp-
Spider-Man No Way Home. It's the culmination of nearly 20 years of web slinging, web excellence. We're going to be talking all about the new film, as well as ranking and talk about all the previous films, including the greatest superhero movie that there's ever been. And I will keep it until next week as to what I think the that Spider-Man is. The Spider-Man 3. The Amazing Spider-Man 2. It might not be the best, but I, I think I have the most to say about Spider-Man. Japanese 3. Spider-Man? Say that again. Japanese Spider-Man? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to spoil it and say no, not that one. <laughs> oh, now no one's going to listen. There's a, there a fun documentary on Disney Plus about Japanese Spider-Man that I recommend everybody oh. go check out. Yeah, please check that out. Uh, please send us your rankings of the Spider-Man film. Send us who's your favorite Spider-Man, who's your favorite Eddie Brock, who's your favorite Aunt May, who's your favorite Flash. <laughs> Do all of that, and we're going to see you guys for our Spider-Man spectacular next time. Thanks for listening. We'll see you then. See ya. Excelsior. Silver Screen Savers podcast was co-created, written, hosted, and produced by Michael Gallant. Tower Sukkis and Matt Sturdivant, with additional editing by Matt Sturdivant, intro music by Charles Michelle via Pixabay, logo design by Nathan Seidel. <laughs>